Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this week's Government vs. the Robots, where I'll be talking to journalist and author James Ball. We're going to be discussing bluff and bullshit, taking a look at why Peppa Pig is a fake news gateway drug, and most interestingly, discussing why Boris Johnson is an inspiration to us all. I sat down with James on a crisp autumnal afternoon and started off by asking him why he chose to take an interest in public discourse in the first place. Cool, James, uh, thanks very much for coming and joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've been taking a look at your books in the last week or so, and um, it strikes me that both at least Bluffocracy and Post-Truth um, are very much about discourse. Uh, and I was wondering when you first kind of your ears first pricked up to public discourse and you decided it was something you were going to pay attention to. I think it's quite hard to be a news journalist for any length of time, and I've been one for 10 years without starting to get a bit frustrated at it and sort of the way we communicate stuff, because... You know, we know lots of bad stuff's going on. People like hyperpartisan news like Breitbart or The Canary. People don't trust us in the media. People don't trust politicians really at all anymore. Um, and so much of it just seems to almost be, you know, blaming the public for not liking what we do while carrying on doing the same thing and just sort of waiting for someone to fix it. So I think both of them in different angles are a way to try and actually go you know what, we're doing a lot of this wrong. It's kind of our fault that people don't back us anymore. And just before we crack on, why did you want to become a journalist in the first place? So, I, I mean, it's being a wind-up for money, isn't it? It's uh, You get paid to, you know, dig into stuff and sort of find things out and to uh, occasionally, if you're writing comment, vent your opinions. Um, it's great, much better than real work. And I suppose that it, as a wind-up merchant, I guess then it's no surprise that when I uh, read the books, the central theme in Bluffocracy is, of course, bluffing. Yep. <laughs> uh, the central theme in Post-Truth is bullshit. It is indeed. Uh, which I guess leads me to ask you if you can kind of summarise bluffing and summarise bullshit and maybe tell me which you think is worth and are they different i think they are different so bluffing is a sort of it's a very british establishment habit um we connect it to the oxford degree ppe philosophy politics and economics a lot and it's sort of the ability for people sort of like me frankly to very quickly learn the basics of a brief and then sound really authoritative on it so i might only know four sentences about something but i'll say three of them really confidently and know i've got an extra fact in my back pocket i've got no real knowledge but i can probably come across as an expert for a short time and 
we run our country on this basis. You know, we sort of have ministers who someone will one day be running the justice system, the next the defence, and three months later health. I mean, that's insane. No rational country would ever do that. Um, and we're similar with journalists, and we're frankly the same with the civil service now. Um, and so bluffing, it's not necessarily that people are stupid or people are bad, but it's that they sort of don't we don't value expertise really at all um bullshit i think is the more dangerous of the two um and i didn't sort of just pick it facetiously in the title there's a philosophy uh, essay by a guy called harry frankfurt and he says basically a lie kind of respects the rules of truth you're still trying to be consistent you're still trying to make a coherent narrative you're sort of still following the form of truth and so you're almost respecting it, even though you're subverting it. Whereas a bullshit claim will just be whatever's the best thing you can say in that moment. So it's someone who will speak just to an audience in front of them or just whatever gets them through that day. And they won't worry about being consistent. They'll just directly contradict themselves, directly contradict a fact, whatever gets them through. And the danger of bullshit is it sort of starts undermining all of the institutions that underpin the truth. You know, the media just become a rival narrative. You know, truth, facts become a rival narrative. And even things like the judicial system or, you know, other checks and balances, just another narrative, just another story. So bullshit's the more corrosive of the two, but bluffing's maybe the more pervasive. And without getting too complicated for people who are listening to this, thinking through these terms for the first time, are any bluffers also bullshitters? Is it a powerful combination? Or if you're a bluffer, are you kind of not likely to be a bullshitter as well? I think if you're not a bluffer, you're probably never going to be a bullshitter. You know, it's um, sort of while we kind of pick on something like PPE, I mean, Boris Johnson is an obvious example of someone who's both. You know, he doesn't really ever dig into anything. He's just got that kind of, oh, well, things will be okay, won't they? You know, good reputation for being clever without actually ever demonstrating it. Um, and, of course, he talks complete nonsense. So, you know, he gets paid about £5,000 per newspaper column. I get paid £150 to fact-check them. And a lot of weeks we don't even bother because there's nothing in it to fact-check. just manages to waffle. Um, so I think... I think it's very hard to be a bullshitter if you're not also a bluffer. I must admit, I really enjoyed your takedown of Boris Johnson in the book Post Truth. It was one of the more enjoyable parts of the book. I know you wrote it in 2017 and quite a lot's changed since then, but can you just run me through how you kind of constructed the argument of the book Post Truth? What were the, the, the building blocks of kind of... I think you were first out of the gate with the Post Truth book. There's a few knocking around now. Yes, but... We were we would have first announced um, that we managed to end up with three books called Post Truth published on the same day, uh, Matt Dancona and Evan Davis. Uh, were the same day as mine which I think in the end actually helped it because they all came to it from a different angle and I tried to actually sort of shift it from a debate about fake news or sort of social media or news sites to be actually it's about mainstream information and how that's broken so it's talking about you know the main way you will get misinformation get misled is through the mainstream media we have the biggest reach we have the biggest access and we're still the thing that most people trust more than niche stuff and so it's trying to talk about sort of how 
that's been subverted. And it isn't just a sort of simple tale of the internet is bad. You know, the internet is a bigger reach for most news outlets than they've ever had. You can get a wider variety of news to cross-check. You actually get shown a lot more stuff than you would if you just bought one newspaper. But it's destroyed the economics of it. And, you know, a lot of it starts talking about how the revenue model of the internet sort of favours sensationalised cheap takes. Um, it sort of favours news outlets that still do quality reporting, also doing quick churn that looks identical. So how are you meant to sort of subvert that? And then it tries to get into things like how the media are not well equipped to deal with people like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump or the alt-right, you know, or the Milo Yiannopoulos of the world. Um, and so it does touch on fake news and it does touch on social media and all of these issues. But a lot of it is trying to actually go, hey, it's not just the new things that are bad or it's not directly like that. It's not if you get rid of fake news or hire more fact checkers, you'll fix this. It's kind of saying it's the entire information economy. So this isn't interviewer sycophancy, but I've read all three of the post-truth books. And I have to, I have to confess that yours was my favourite by quite some margin. Um Partly because it was the first one that I've read where I was like, oh, hang on a minute, this is kind of some of what I've been thinking. So one of the reasons behind starting Government versus the Robots in the first place is to try and think about some stuff properly and perhaps like not be too much of a bluffer, perhaps. Yeah. I've got to a place where I can see that there's a kind of there are three competing business models that are kind of driving a cycle of acceleration of of a post truth world. So you've got what humans are, which isn't a business model; it's an essence, and it's unlikely to change. So you've got human nature, which dictates what's news, and then you've got the business models of journalism, which are under you know increasingly in flux with regards to the internet, and that presents new challenges, but news isn't going to change and then you've got social media as a way of spreading that stuff and the business models of social media are unlikely to change radically in the near future so you've got this kind of perfect storm of human nature the business model of journalism and the new new kids on the block in tech kind of all yeah. encouraging each other um, and i felt that your book was the best reflection of that but i wonder which of those three things you think is most ripe for changing because none of them feel particularly like they're about to change overnight i mean it's such a centrist dad answer, but I tend to think we have to try and kick lots of switches a little bit rather than try and, you know, massively pull on one lever. Um, I think there's a real cop-out whenever we talk about misinformation or fake news or polarisation or anything. We always end up quite piously saying, well, you know, we should teach it, we should build it into the school system. You know, the number of things on the national curriculum, you know, people do it for financial literacy, for good eating, for, you know... Um, sort of sex and consent the answer to everything just seems to be let's give up on every living adult and hope that a teacher with 20 minutes a week can uh, sort of fix this major societal <laughs> problem but there is a little bit of that if more of us counted to five before retweeting or sharing something like literally just doing that we would see the information ecosystem improve because it does tend to be that little sort of compulsive, angry moment. You know, I can't believe they would do that. Then you realise you're sharing a bad version of a story or a story that doesn't matter. Um, so ultimately, we've got to stay interested in what we're interested in. I think the big thing that the internet has done is sort of show that we're all filthy liars. You know, we all say we want more imp impartial reporting and more foreign news and less celebrity. It's like, I've read the stats for many, many websites. I know what everyone really clicks. And we all guiltily know that we do it too. We might read some foreign news, but we also read a lot of stuff about Celebrity Big Brother. 
you know, that's fine. That's okay. We're going to carry on being like that. Um, I think the business model is the sort of obvious thing to change. But I think there's a grievance culture in journalism Mm. where, you know what, a lot of the advertising that newspapers lost, they lost because they weren't a good vehicle for it. If you want to buy a car, it's better to go to an easy website where you can search it and get it. You know, Rightmove or whichever other property sites is a lot better than flicking through a newspaper. You know, Tinder is better than a personal ad in a newspaper. It's not unfair that newspapers have lost that revenue. It was lovely to have it, but, you know, that's not going to come back and it's not really anyone's fault that they lost it. You know, it's maybe their fault for not seeing it and investing in those companies themselves when they were losing the advertising, but they didn't. So, except the Guardian obviously had Auto Trader, which is a, now it's sold and is a big part of its endowment. So, you know, maybe there's something to it. But they're going to have to work out a new business model, and the advertising one, sort of as you as you set out with your cycle, is really toxic because you get maybe about a third of a cent per click. Mm. And so what does that incentivize? Lots of clicks at minimal cost. So you have newsrooms now where people have to produce a story either one an, one an hour or one every 45 minutes. That's national newspapers that are churning at that rate. And a fake news site is actually just the end of that business model. It's not distinct, you know, massive audience. And instead of 10 minutes reporting, you just invent it dead easy um so we have to move away from an ad only market and i think more and more places are doing um that means people getting used to paying for the news again while trying not to entirely shut it off and have kind of a media for the one percent but it also kind of means the culture of working out other ways to pay for journalism it's interesting what you say about fake news being the end of that chain of advertising i was listening to on a, on a different podcast it was um ezra klein's podcast and he had a guest on who was talking about the fact that the algorithm seems to kind of lead you in more extreme directions if you go on youtube to look at peppa pig if you follow enough of a chain you'll be looking at 9-11 conspiracy theories or you'll be looking at like really hard left communist manifestos um and I wonder what you feel has changed in your understanding of this kind of post-truth world since you wrote the book last year. What do you think are the most significant events of the last 12 months? I think we're starting to pay attention to algorithms and recommendations more than we did. I think there's a much wider understanding that both your Facebook and Twitter feeds, and especially YouTube, are tailored in very odd ways, often designed to keep you on the site but which can warp and distort in quite odd ways. Now, I think as Facebook's use is dwindling, it starts sending me some very strange notifications. Now, I think there's one or two people who happened to see a picture of them, you know, at a wedding or their kid born, and liked it. And now any time those one or two friends post, not not necessarily my closest friends, I get notifications on my phone as if I sort of deeply, deeply care about every minor development in this casual acquaintance's life uh, because it has so little information to go off. Um, You know, with something like YouTube, I think they obviously have no particular intention to indoctrinate you into Freemasonry or a lizard conspiracy or a far-left thing. But they're the thing that's most likely to keep you on there because it's a weird rabbit hole if it just sort of keeps giving you bland content you might go well i've watched my pepper pig episode i'm off if it's why on earth is it showing me this it piques your curiosity so you click it so it becomes more likely to show you someone else that same weird video 
Um, and so we sort of need people to be a lot cleverer about how they code this stuff because no algorithmic's ever agnostic. They're made for a particular purpose and they sort of end up with lots of inadvertent consequences. And so I think there's sort of this tricky thing to try and make what's cock-up sound like conspiracy. You know, they're just actually trying to make a decent user experience. So they think we sort of act as if they're crack peddlers or something. They're trying to make it an interesting and engaging service to use. And they've found out that that has got lots of negative consequences. So I actually think if we sort of frame it in those terms and go, this is a story of unintended consequences and say, how do you train one not to reward that weird curiosity, why on earth am I being shown this click? And that's very doable. Like, that's a lot more tackleable than sort of saying, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is an evil overlord who mm. wants you to stare at a screen for 20 hours a day and make him even richer, slave. You know, it's sort of fine, sure, if you believe that, fine. But you're not going to get us anywhere. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's interesting that the, even that kind of the algorithm on YouTube is, again, it's appealing to a pretty fundamental bit of human nature. You know, in the same way that news has always done and people decry gossip and people decry too much use of sex in the newspapers, but they all appeal to aspects of what it is to be human and that actually the way that the algorithm seems to have developed in on youtube in particular you know that slight sensationalism that pricking of the subconscious to want to know more and i do wonder increasingly wonder how much there's a kind of a challenge to humanity in that sense but before i get onto that which isn't where i was planning on going um i wanted to talk a bit about bluffocracy so we've kind of outlined and it's much discussed that there's a lot of unintended consequence in play in the world right now and that feels very scary and some of these challenges are so big that you kind of hope that an institution as austere and well established as government would be in a position to try and do something about it but i'm guessing from the thesis of bluffocracy that you feel that perhaps 
government in, in both its elected forms and in its kind of permanent form is not particularly well equipped to deal with these challenges. Yes, um, not at all. I mean, you have a whole bunch of just structural errors. I think you have, there's sort of a habit to sort of just think of it as, oh, they're all stupid. It's not that. There are a lot of very bright people in politics. There are some very dim people in politics too, of course. A lot of very bright people in the civil service and some of the brightest journalists in the country work in a political lobby. And that's a tragedy because they are completely unsuitable institutions. So I just sort of tend to think of the maths of government. You've got people who are making the ministerial decisions that affect billions of pounds of spending, tens of thousands of jobs, and are literally life or death decisions. And Theresa May has 300 candidates to pick 100 jobs from. So if you just look at the cabinet, and she's got 20 cabinet ministers, she has 15 candidates per job. Like, that's outrageous. You know, can you just imagine you have to pick 15 people off a street and make one of them the CEO of McDonald's? What's the odds that you get a good CEO that way? And so you've got a built-in sort of incompetence with ministers. You have so little choice, and they have to be so general, that the system just really restricts them. You get the odd good one, of course, but you get a lot of mediocre ones out of necessity. Now, that would be fine if they've got this expert, specialised civil service behind them to direct the decisions. But increasingly, civil servants are incentivized to jump around very quickly. If you join in the fast stream, you will move post every six months. If you want to get promoted quickly and eventually reach the top ranks and have the influence, you will do it a lot faster following a cycle of switching departments. The people who work in policy sort of near the ministers are the ones who advance, which means you do something, you get it through, you get the crisis out of the way, and then you move on. And so you lose the institutional knowledge, you lose the expertise. Um, And then the sort of people left to sort of hold that responsible is the lobby, which acts as a layer between any specialist journalist who knows what they're talking about and the minister or the official who they could question. So you've got some very good political journalists, but let's say something like Windrush or Universal Credit, you've got reporters who have looked into them, who've been in the job centres, who've met the people and know the detail and the reality on the ground, who could really probe and sort of challenge a blasé statement. That person doesn't get in front of the minister. It's a generalist lobby reporter. And so none of the institutions that are meant to properly wield power or hold it to account or advise it work. They're all full of, you know, the people that we call the bluffocracy. So is the... Are your benign crosshairs, and we should say benign crosshairs in this time of (laughs) heightened language, are they fixed on the lobbies? Could I go so far as to say that that means that, in a sense, the the lobby system is preventing other journalists from holding politicians to account? Yes, I think you need some political specialists. You need people who understand how the process goes through, you know, how the whip counts work, all of that. It is a specialist beat. But the institutions of it, the kind of the difference between a spokesman and the spokesman, uh, the little backgrounds, the off the records, the sort of stuff, people don't understand it very well. People do think journalists make this, th- these things up. And it does feel very detached. Everything's always about what it means for this minister or that minister or this stuff. You know, the way we talk about politics is completely detached from policy. And so, yeah, I would scrap the lobby. I would say it should be possible for ministers to not be MPs. You know, appoint a specialist and have them confirm. That is possible through the Lords, is it not? 
You can do, but why do they even need to be a lord? Why not just have it so the PM appoints a cabinet from the country? It's, that strikes me as strange. I don't necessarily disagree with you. Most, but it's parliaments, stri- it, most parliaments do it that way. It strikes me as strange to make that argument and yet be someone who's clearly so such a big believer in accountability because you remove the democratic link then between the person in office and, and, and their day-to-day role. So, you know, you, they can't be got rid of necessarily at the next election. Well, of course they can because you would change government. But, uh, you know, you make them confirmable through parliament, same way as they are through Senate. They still have to, you know, appear and account to it, you know, in, in front of select committees, in front of parliament. You know, they should still have to do that stuff. But why should they have to also sort of be the MP for Basingstoke? You know, why make them do two jobs? I think sort of running the health service is a full time job. Being a backbench MP is pretty much a full time job as well. And so they're half assing two things. What's the virtue in that? Um, I think it sort of is a fake accountability. We know really that ministers aren't particularly to blame if something goes wrong in their department. You know, Amber Rudd went for being misled and thus lying to Parliament. She's a rare example. Yeah, I I, I genuinely think accidentally that it feels like she'd maybe just had enough because I think she probably could have survived it. But generally... The civil service don't get blamed because ministers are accountable and ministers don't really get blamed because we know they don't actually do it. So it's not like the system at the moment holds power to account. So why not look at changing it? So let's take a, let's take a case study of this. In this world where you know, the civil service, increasingly people are jumping around, they're not, they don't have time to master a brief because that takes decades, not weeks, and politicians inevitably are in and out of a revolving door or a swinging black door. Uh, and journalists are under pressure to produce particular types of 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 news and then we are faced with this big sort of techopolis for want of a better way of putting it so we're frantically trying to work out what's a sensible regulatory framework what can we do to deal with the unintended consequences of technology meeting news meeting human nature and at the minute what's your sense of who's trying to get on top of it and can you can you give me an example of how the bluffocracy is making it difficult directly difficult for us to deal with the rise of technology in society? Well, only something like 3% of journalists are specialised in science or technology. Um, There's only one female engineer in Parliament. There's sort of a tiny minority of people with any kind of science or tech background. And an immensely complicated new world where, you know, the levels of unintended consequences of what you can manage on the internet are impressive. Uh, and varied. Um, So I think one of the sort of killer ones is this utter lack of understanding about encryption and people not understanding that it's not like a door key where you can just give someone a second key and it's still quite secure. If you weaken encryption for one place, it weakens it for everywhere. So when they talk about you know, Amber Rudd had a phase of coming out after every terror attack, you know, I think about 10 minutes after Westminster Bridge and started talking about encrypted social media. Like, that's literally just a talking point. She had no way of knowing if it was connected at all. And what we've learned subsequent from them is WhatsApp was never particularly a factor. But they sort of get these things in their head and it becomes a line rather than a serious way of tackling it. If you weaken encryption, you help sort of not only criminal hackers, you know, you weaken the security for our comms, you raise blackmail risks, you help bank fraudsters, you help all of that. You also help Russia or China. And also a lot of terror groups fund themselves through cybercrime. And so this sort of move, through a lack of understanding and through it being an easy villain and an easy talking point, you actually threaten 
our genuine national security. And so a lack of engagement with it, a lack of sort of knowledge of the depth and the complexity and possible sort of side effects of policy really come to show with tech. And, you know, I think a lot of the debate we have around regulating the internet, regulating speech, looking at this stuff, doesn't tend to work. We tend to stick to comfort zones. You know, Parliament did quite well in a sense in that, you know, the DCMS committee launched an investigation into fake news and then essentially quite quickly found fake news wasn't the problem. Um, And one of its recommendations, and one of very few that actually got taken up, was the government has dropped the term fake news. Uh, That's the rare positive development. (laughs) But it's telling that it got to the stage of launching an investigation into it before they sort of found, actually, we hadn't thought this through. And do you do you think there may be a junior civil servant somewhere in Whitehall tearing their hair out at the incompetence of the response, or do you think it's so bad that they're not there either? So I should say there are a lot of specialists in the civil service. They just tend to be tucked away in junior positions where they don't really get access to ministers. So I absolutely think there are some people tearing their hair out. There are some very sensible people in the security services who sort of roll their eyes with some of the madness of the legislation that goes through. You know, some of the powers in the new sort of investigatory powers act and all of this stuff, you know, it's this constant focus on bulk surveillance where a lot of people in the agencies and a lot of the investigations find we don't have enough resources to monitor people already coming up on shortlists. So while we're constantly struggling and failing to get the needle in the haystack, we pile ever more hay into it constantly and then wonder why sort of stuff slips through. Um, So, yes, I think there are still quite a lot of competent, clever people there, but I think their voices struggle to be heard. I could ask uh, what you think the antidote to all this is, but I know the answers to that are at the back of Post Truth, so I won't (laughs) do that. I will pick up on one thing. A lot of people, we had an episode we did with uh, Meevan from Full Fact a few episodes back, and I know you um, have written a bit about fact-checking and whether that is part of the solution. Can you just kind of share your scepticism with regards to fact-checks? So I should confess I'm an ex-fact-checker. I still write them sometimes. I like people who fact-check. If they're part of the solution, they're a very, very small part of it, and they can be quite counterproductive in a lot of ways. Um, If you believe a story, don't look for a fact-check of it. So it only really picks you up if you're either the kind of person who just generally likes fact checks, in which case you're probably a fairly informed person and a bit of a nerd anyway, and quite likely to be someone who goes, oh, well, actually, rather than sort of someone who gets in that. So it's a bit preaching to the converted, you know, and if you're not generally a fact check reader, it'll be for a story you disagree with and you don't want it to be true. You know, there's also a compulsive habit among fact checkers especially when it's politics to go oh well it's all a little bit complicated and to sit on the fence now i think a lot of them let themselves do that you know jeremy corbyn says this is falling theresa may says it's rising well they're both right because it depends how you measure it you know waste of air um frankly you know not help not helpful to general discourse either at the moment no it it's just sort of yes he's he said this she said that they both there it's not satisfying to an audience it's it's a bad political habit but it's also not something fact checking addresses so it doesn't connect to an audience it's not where the people being misled are and you've got to be where they are there's also the danger that if you fact-check, you end up with a story where a politician makes claim which leads your website or is on the front of your paper. 
and then something buried away inside where you actually check whether what they're saying is true. And, you know, fact-checking, another word for it's reporting. And so the danger of having specialist fact-check is it reduces the pressure to do it in the story. And, you know, one of the better things that has started to emerge largely after Post-Truth was out is people putting without evidence or falsely or things like that in headlines um, you know, because we used to joke no one reads past the intro, so make sure that makes your point. Well, now tons of people don't get to the intro. So if your headline doesn't stand on its own ground, you know, there's no point saying Trump claims X and then in paragraph two pointing out it's false. Lots of people will only see that headline. So if that's misleading on its own, tough. And so a lot of this stuff you're not going to fix with fact-checking. You know, it's a sticking plaster on a gaping wound. But I do like fact-checkers. <laughs> so my last question is just to ask, I mean, you're, you're building a career kind of plunging thorns into the side of the establishment. And I wonder what you would say to a young person thinking about a career in public service who doesn't want to go and do PPE because you know, that's a well-trodden route and the Bluff Oxy takes that to pieces in an insightful way for anybody who hasn't studied PPE, um, of whom I, I expect are quite a lot of our listeners, and they want to become an expert, but all of the routes require bluffing. What's your advice to that person who wants to take things seriously, wants to be cerebral, doesn't want to be knee-jerk by being led by the news agenda, but does want to make a positive contribution to society? Nice, easy question there. Um, I think you should try and become an expert in some things. You know, I in Bluffocracy, I self-ID as a bluffer and I'm a PPEist, but I've tried to become an expert in the things that I do cover. But then I try to talk like a normal human. I think there's a real danger with experts and, you know, nerds and the evidence community. We talk to each other too much. Journalists try and impress other journalists. Politicians try to impress each other. And you can be a real expert and talk like a human being and sort of connect with people. So you need to borrow a little bit of the bluffer's toolkit. You need to look at, just on an easy level, you know, how can sort of someone like Boris Johnson, who went to Eton, has been in the cabinet, has been, you know, all of these things, look anti-establishment? How can Farage, who, you know, a former metals trader and, you know, someone who's been a European politician since forever, how can he look anti-establishment? You know, why do they seem real? And someone, you know, so many other politicians seem like these sort of stuffed shirt technocrats. So I think it's about actually public service is a good thing. We want more people in there and we especially want people who are expert and who, you know, bring some depth of knowledge. But don't sort of wear it totally on your sleeve. You've got to, you know, it's a, such a horrible and glib line, but I really believe it. We've sort of moved from authority doesn't work anymore do this because the politician or the bank manager or the doctor says so doesn't connect it, you've got to seem authentic you've got to seem real and that's how you build trust that's how you sort of change minds and that's hopefully how you can change these institutions there you have it so there you go folks if boris johnson can do it you can definitely do it is the optimistic note for this week james thank you very much for joining me it's been great chatting thank you so that's all for this time. Next time we're going to be talking to Nadine Smith at the Centre for Public Impact about legitimacy and how governments can win back trust from people. 
As ever, if you've enjoyed this week's show, please do tell your friends about it. You can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore Robots. We're now available on a wide array of podcast apps, including Stitcher and Spotify. My thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast, and I look forward to talking to you next time.